Lamentations chapter 2, let's talk about nations. God establishes all the nations of the world. Paul the Apostle said, from one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. God has a rather simple approach in his dealings with the nations he establishes. We found this in Jeremiah. It's in chapter 18. Very straightforward, very clear. He says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I, brought, uh, that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. A good summary of that is the much simpler statement of Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The seriousness of practicing righteousness in your nation is understood when you read Psalm 9.17 where it says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Wow. I'm focusing on God's ways of dealing with whole nations because it helps make better sense of what happened to the Jews when Jerusalem fell uh, to Babylon in 586 B.C. The catastrophe that befell them at the hands of the Chaldean army of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was quite awful. In the account we will be reading tonight in Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to encounter things like the cannibalism of children by their parents. The catastrophe is directly attributed to God in this chapter. It isn't that he allowed it, he accomplished it. Our immediate reaction can be, how can God do that to his own people? The answer is that he was dealing with Israel as a nation, not as individual saved Jews who were his children. Just because the nation of Israel is called his elect nation or God's chosen people, it doesn't mean every Jew was or is saved. When God made his promises to Abraham, he specified there would be three groups of people who would spring forth from Abraham and be considered his descendants on some level. First, Abraham would have physical descendants, or we might say natural descendants, who would be the ethnic people we call the Jews. These especially descend from Isaac through Jacob as the 12 tribes. And so uh, all, the, all the individuals who physically descend from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob are Jews. Among these natural descendants, some also become spiritual descendants. They believe God and he saves them. Then in the New Testament, we see a third group who are not naturally descended from Abraham, but who are nevertheless called his spiritual descendants. These are saved Gentiles like you and I. 
We are considered the spiritual seed of Abraham. It has nothing to do with us being Jews or with the church taking the place of Israel. It's all there in Genesis where God gives the Abrahamic covenant. He says there's, you know, there's going to be a multitude of people that spring forth from you, and some of those are going to be saved, and some of them aren't even going to be your natural descendants. They're going to be others with whom I share the gospel. And so we are therefore reading in Lamentations the record of God's discipline against a nation of mostly non-believers. As a nation, they had done evil in his sight, and he had come to destroy them. Remember, too, God's long-suffering, very important. He had been holding off his judgment many, many years. I've been saying on Sunday mornings, 40 years as we've been going through Jeremiah because that's the span of Jeremiah's ministry to the Jews, four decades. But the truth is the Jews had been disobeying God for at least 490 years because when you get into the book of Daniel, you find that the length of the Babylonian captivity was set at 70 years, and it was calculated from how many Sabbaths uh, the Jews owed the Lord, how many, uh, you know, seventh-year Sabbaths they had omitted. Uh, they had, uh, you know, quit. They owed him 70 of those over a period of 490 years. And so God had been dealing with them for a long, long time. It's like, you know, people in Walmart counting to one million with their children. If you don't stop, you know, if you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to count to one million. <laughs> counting to 10, you might as well count to one. But, but that's the idea. And you think, you're thinking, well, you know, by that time, you know, Walmart would be out of business, but uh, it, it's, it's crazy. So God waited a long, long time. And during that time, he wasn't silent. He had sent famines and droughts and pestilence, which were all clear signs that he was getting ready to pluck up the nation. He sent prophet after prophet to make clear what was happening and why it was happening. The Jews only hardened their hearts all the more. By this time, they were involved in gross idolatry, which included the sacrifice of their own infant children. Sadly, the believers in Judah, men like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they were caught in the judgment of God because they were part of the nation that was being judged. But as we've seen repeatedly on Sunday mornings, God was working in and through them. Nevertheless, he considered their lives the spoils of this war. He saw their lives as something precious. Even though they had to go through the suffering with their people, God was using them and ministering to them and through them. Now, all of what I just said needs to be kept in mind as we read this chapter. God's dealings with Israel were on the one hand no different than his judging Assyria or Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome. Later on, we'll mention Sodom and Gomorrah even. And so, you know, generally we don't think, I mean, when, other than the, the f mere fact of human suffering and that it's terrible, when, when we say, well, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, we think, well, yeah, of course. It's about time. But then when we think, well, how could God do this to Israel, we forget that they were mostly non-believers. And God had given them 500 years to repent, and he'd warned them repeatedly, I'm going to have to destroy you if you don't repent. So the first nine, uh, and on the other hand, remember too, in his judgment, he remembered mercy, 
because he always kept a remnant of saved Jews safe to fulfill the destiny of that nation. We see that even today. Is God still working with his chosen people, even though they are not, for the most part, saved. Now, the first nine verses depict the destruction of Jerusalem sort of from heaven's perspective, God looking down, and and there's no doubt that it was God who was behind it. He did it. Verse 1, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and he did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob, He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. With his right hand, like an adversary, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and the Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Let's concentrate on two major ideas that are captured in those verses. The first has to do with the temple and the worship of God. When he mentions early on the footstool of the Lord, that he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat cover. Also mentioned here is the tabernacle, that inner room of the temple. There was also mention of the altar and the sanctuary. In other words, God is reminding them that he destroyed the temple. If you've been here for any of the studies uh, in Jeremiah or Lamentations, you know this is significant because the non-believing Jews thought they were safe and that they could sin all they wanted because God would never destroy or allow to be destroyed his temple. Uh, Jeremiah would stand outside the temple and deliver his messages of doom and gloom and uh, his call for repentance. And and in one portion of scripture, uh, it said the people would walk by and they would just say, Jeremiah, the temple, the temple of the Lord. And they would dismiss any of his warnings thinking God is not ever going to allow this beautiful structure. And we're talking about Solomon's temple Uh, that beautiful temple that Solomon had built and God's glory had descended upon. And the Jews just thought, hey, we're safe. It doesn't really matter what we do. It was to them a kind of magical or lucky charm that automatically protected them from harm. And the lesson there, of course, is that because they were neglecting true worship, God took away all the institutions of their worship that they were observing 
in hypocrisy. They were still going through the motions. They were still going to the temple on the Sabbath day, <clears throat> abiding in the feasts and, and whatnot. And God said, but your heart is far from me, and, and you're only going through the outward motions, and so I'm going to take away all the outward trappings of this religion, and you're just going to be left on your own uh, and exposed as someone who is not a true worshiper. Without any altar or tabernacle, without the priests, without even the law, it says, because they would be subject to another people, would they still worship him? It's a reminder that the Lord is interested in worship from our hearts. The old adage is still true that the heart of worship is worship from the heart. It does no good to go through outward motions of worship if our hearts are far from him. And especially if we're committing sin openly, habitually, while still calling on the name of the Lord, thinking he won't do anything to discipline us. I believe in grace as much or more than the next guy or gal. Uh, and we try to be as gracious as possible. But at some point, if people are in sin, you just have to quit. You just have to wake up one day and say, all right, I, enough is enough. I can't keep going through the motions of worship and knowing that I'm in sin and that I shouldn't be uh, and, and act as if because I go to church or have devotions or whatever it might be that, that everything is really all right. Uh, and so, you know, God's interested in the heart, in us being right with him in the heart of worship. Uh, and uh, if he has to take away all the outward trappings of our uh, religion, as it were, he'll do that in order to expose what's in our heart. The other major idea, or I'd say major image in these verses, is the Lord as their enemy, bending a bow to shoot them. Even though it was the Chaldeans who battered the walls and burnt the city physically, God says it was me. He wasn't simply allowing it, he was the one accomplishing it. This isn't a case of why do bad things happen to good people or why do bad things happen to God's people. Remember, this was more like God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. These were mostly non-believers who were extremely wicked, whom God had been warning for hundreds and hundreds of years to repent, who not only refused to repent, but a couple of times said, not only are we not going to repent, we're going to sin even more and do everything that is in our heart to do. Uh, and they were already killing their children, sacrificing their own children there in Gehenna. Yes, believers were caught up in this, but in a world in which sin exists, because God's long-suffering waits, giving space for repentance, the suffering of believers among unbelievers is going to be inevitable. Uh, the problem in the world today, as it has been since the Garden of Eden, is sin. The solution is a Savior. A Savior has come, and He's coming again. But this plan, as you read the history of it, you see it, it, it took time to unfold in our history. And, and God is abiding time even now, uh, seeking hearts that would turn towards Him in repentance. Uh, and the longer He waits, the more... People suffer, but the more people get saved as well. 
His long-suffering waits, but it will, it will end one day, just like it did with Noah and the ark. Uh, in those antediluvian times, it will end one day soon, uh, and we'll be in the midst, or not we, but the world will be in the midst of the great tribulation. But, but that's what's happening here. Yes, believers were caught up in it, but inevitable. The next group of verses in our chapter try to express inexpressible grief. They do a pretty good job of it, but it's just really very sad and, and grievous. The elders of the daughter of Zion, verse 10, sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the street of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? We are right to be horrified at the suffering that came upon even innocent children as they huddled together in the city those last days before the Chaldeans broke through the walls and the gates. But why blame God for it when the real problem was the sin of the people? Should God, should God have ignored the fact that they were sacrificing their own children already to the fires of idolatry? I'm not suggesting they had God backed into a corner and this was his only play. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, tonight I'm trying to accomplish changing our way of thinking about some of this because um, wh- what do you do? What do you do with a people this stubborn? Because as I mentioned a couple of times on Sunday morning, if God would have totally abandoned them, he couldn't, of course, because of his promises to them, but to totally abandon them would be to see them ruin themselves completely and totally so that there would be no Israel, no Jews, no Jesus, and that's a big problem. Uh, And so God, he, he, he counted to a million and then he said, I've got to do something. I have to, I have to work with a remnant. And the rest of you are going to get what you deserve and what I told you was coming. Whenever we see anything along these lines, anywhere in the world through history, we ought to be reminded not of the inaction of God, but of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Sin is worse than we think, even as Christians. It's, it's ugly, it's terrifying, it destroys. Um, it leads to this type of behavior when left alone. Even among a people who have the law of God, the tabernacle of God, the presence of God. These, you have to understand the Jews, as a people, had the very Shekinah glory of God in their temple. They had all the privileges that Paul mentions in the book of Romans, the patriarchs and the law and uh, the sacrifices and all of that. And they said, eh, we kind of like what the Babylonians are doing with Dagon. And uh, this, this whole Molech worship where you put your live babies, you know, in the fire, that's, that's got to count for something. And, uh, you know, and then people say, well, you know, God destroyed those people. Well... What, what, what do you do with people like that? It's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's, it's what 
caused Jesus to go to the cross. Say, I, I have to die. As the God-man, I have to die for the, for the sin so this can be broken, so this can be forgiven, so this can be propitiated, so that there can be peace with God. And um, so, you know, the problem is sin, <clears throat> not God's inactivity. Um, God sent his son to die for these things. I, I don't know anybody else who's doing that. You know, as people complain about how bad the world is, God is the one acting to save it. <clears throat> Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. They had the word of God as well as true prophets, but preferred the words of lying prophets who told them their sin wasn't really sin. One of the gravest errors a society can make, and when you know you're pretty near the bottom, is when you call evil good when you call sin good. When what God says clearly is sin, society says is not only not sin, but it's actually good. And that's what these people were doing. They had their false prophets. We have our false prophets today, whether they're uh, godless sociologists or psychologists or whoever they are that, are, that are that would look at God's word and say, these boundaries, these restrictions, these morals... They're for an ancient time. We're open now. We're free. We're unrestricted. We're so much smarter. We understand human nature and all of that kind of thing. And things that God says are evil, they say are actually really good and, and good for you. Uh, and, and we're pretty close to the bottom. Verse 15, all who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and is not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. The Jews were supposed to be revealing the glory of God to the other nations. They were God's plan of evangelism. If they wouldn't do it from a position of obedience to God that he could bless, he was going to have to show his mighty power to the nations through his discipline of his people and his continued care of them through that discipline. Either way, God would reveal himself. He would prefer to do it by blessing them. Verse 18, their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. It took this much for them to finally turn and face the Lord. He had tried everything else, tried everything else for nearly five centuries. Those of you who <clears throat> discipline your children, um, there's, there, there, every now and then there's a moment of real surprise when they, they understand that you were serious. You say, XXX, I'm going to have to spank you, you know, and then it goes on. You know how that goes. You only count to 500,000, but you get there. And then they say, all right, go to your room and you're going to get a spanking. What? Since when? 
when did you say that? And you say, well, it's kind of a standing rule in our house, and I just said it five minutes ago. And there's that, there's, when they actually face the punishment, it's like, wow, this is, this is actually going to happen. I, who knew? And that's kind of the moment that this, it took all of this, it actually took the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple with all of this carnage for the survivors to say, wow, this is real. This is serious. This sin thing, God's not messing around with this. I I guess this is bad for us. See, O Lord, and consider to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. Some parents became cannibals and ate their own children. You know, this was predicted centuries earlier by Moses when he warned Israel of the consequences of disobedience to God's law. It's in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. They, I guess, didn't take it seriously, didn't think. No one ever thinks they could sink to the level that it's possible to sink to um, or to drop their phone for that matter, but. You, you know, people, when, they get, when, they, when you're toying with sin and dabbling in sin, you think, well, I'll, I'll, never, I'll, I'll never become a, a, a drug addict or a drunk. I'll never be homeless. I'll never lose my family. I'll, none of that stuff will ever happen. And then it does. Suddenly, it comes upon you, and that's what was happening to them. People have an amazing propensity for ignoring not only warnings but very real danger. Then they blame God when all the while he told them what was inevitable should they sin. So more than 500 years earlier, God said, look, I want to bless you and I will bless you, but if you do these things, it's going to be bad and and you you don't believe me right now, but you're going to end up eating your own children. And so he warned them and they thought, yeah, we're never, that's never going to happen. That's like when I was, I don't know who I was talking to today, but my dad used to threaten to send me to military school. Did you ever, anybody, did your fathers ever threaten to send you to military school? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I think one time as I got older, I said, where is one? And then I started looking into it and I thought, hey, this could be actually pretty cool. I could get out of here, you know, and so they had to shift tactics. But, you know, it, it was one of those things where, I, yeah, that's never going to happen. But when God said, look, if you guys, you guys, you don't understand, but you can get so far from me in your pride and vanity and idolatry that you're going to end up in a situation where you're going to be eating your own children. What? That's never going to happen. And it did. Verse 22, you've invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refugee or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. God would much rather have seen his people gathered to one of Israel's solemn feasts Instead, they forced him to gather together terrible enemies to consume them as if they were feasting. Now, since we're talking about nations, what can we say about the United States as we close? Well, we're not a major player in Bible prophecy, and that by itself is somewhat concerning. It doesn't mean, however, that some horrible judgment is on the horizon. It could be that the rapture of the church changes world politics more than we would imagine. We are hardly a Christian nation, but when the rapture occurs, a great number of people will be removed. And it could be that those left must join with Canada and Mexico to form 
uh, a North American Union. And that would, you know, the, the geopolitics is going to change immensely when the rapture of the church takes place. And I think the United States will be uh, greatly affected, as will other countries in the world, obviously. Um, <laughs> some countries less than others, I would say. <laughs> it's going to take some people a while to figure out anything's happened, you know. But uh, the United States, I mean, you know, I'm not saying we're 85% Christian like the polls say we're not. But there are a lot of Christians, even marginal Christians in the United States, and it's just going to be devastating. So, you know, every day I read some televangelist or, or some pastor or some f- Christian leader who says that, you know, the, this was the judgment of God or this was the finger of God, this tornado, this hurricane, this storm, this earthquake, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, apart from a direct word from the Lord, I mean, I, I don't know how to distinguish, you know, that from just the natural disasters we've been facing because the world is a weird place, uh, you know. So I'm not saying that some that God couldn't judge America, uh, but it, we're just not in Bible prophecy, and it's probably because of uh, the rapture. We do need to remember that the United States is not Israel. We are a nation God has raised up like any other nation. Now, you and I know that we're maybe the greatest nation that has ever been for many different reasons, And we can be patriotic. There's nothing wrong with that. But still, in the scheme of things, putting on your your Christian hat tonight, we're just another nation in the whole history of the nations of the world. And the nation God is really focused on is Israel and how other nations relate to Israel. Uh, And and, um, like any other nation, righteousness will do what? It will exalt us. And sin will be a pro, uh, is a reproach that invites God to remove us. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like asking God, you know, the more, the more we as a nation move into immorality and calling good evil and evil good, um, we're inviting God to judge and to, to, to take away our place on the world stage. We must therefore stand for righteousness, but the first place to do it is right in our own lives and in the corporate life of the church. Peter once said that judgment should begin in the house of God. That has a wide application, but um, I think sometimes Christians can be guilty of looking at the secular world, the non-saved world, uh, and and, uh, ascribe uh, terrible things to them. I don't say it as a rebuke that judgment begins in the house of God, but as a reminder to look within before we look around. The immorality of the world is not necessarily to be condoned, but it's to be expected. I, I expect non-believers to act like non-believers. In fact, I'm amazed that they don't act worse than they do. Uh, and it, it's, it's an astonishing thing. The immorality of the church, of Christians, that is not to be expected. Uh, and so righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Judgment begins in the house of God. We need to make sure our own house is shorn up first. And if it is, we will be that beautiful testimony to others uh, of the love and grace and glory of God through Jesus Christ. They will be hungry for righteousness when they see righteousness. The answer, uh, separate from the you know, political arena, I'm, I'm fine, obviously, with people getting involved in politics and voting and passing laws and running for office. I think that's all great. I'm not against that. Uh, people think I am. I'm not. 
But the, the bottom line is that more people need to be Christians. And if, if 85% of people in the United States were Christians, we wouldn't be calling good evil and evil good. Righteousness would exalt our nation, and we'd be in a whole lot better shape than we are today. Amen?